Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chandler. So hello, Food and Faith Podcast community. We are glad to be here today. I, Anna, am here with our new co-host, Derek Weston, and we have the pleasure of getting to interview um, a guest who is a new friend to me and an old friend to Derek. And so, Derek, will you tell us about our guest today? Yeah, I'm really excited that uh, for the first the first interview that I get to do for the Food and Faith podcast is with John Creasy. John Creasy. Um, is a big part of why I'm a part of this conversation anyway. The work that he was, uh, he's done in Pittsburgh, um, where I'm from, uh, and where John's from, uh, is is work that planted a seed. I wasn't, I, I never thought that I was going to be kind of on the path that I was, but it, I was. It's a seed that's been germinating and growing uh, for years in the back of my mind. To that's kind of led to some of the things that I'm doing now. Um, so John, John is the John Creasy is the founding pastor of the Open Door Presbyterian Church and executive director of Garfield Community Farm. Uh, John loves serving the church in areas of mission and outreach, helping members connect their faith to all aspects of life for the sake of the world. John and his wife Alyssa lead the Open Doors Music Ministry and enjoy creating music with the band This Side of Eve. They're a fantastic band. As director of Garfield Farm, John has worked to create an ecologically diverse neighborhood farm on nearly three acres of land at the top of the Garfield neighborhood. John leads an excellent staff at the farm and collectively lead hundreds of students and volunteers each year. The farm serves to educate the local church on our call as Christians for environmental sustainability and to provide healthy organic produce to those lower income in the Garfield neighborhood. And John and Alyssa have three children and they are on the east end of Pittsburgh. John, welcome. Hey, thank you. Really glad to be here. Glad to have you. So your bio gives us the beginning answers to some of this question of geography, but um, we would love to dive in more. So walk us around the Garfield neighborhood and walk us around mm. what it, it looks like um, to be doing the work at this intersection of food and faith where you are. No, that's a, that's a great way uh, to start this conversation. Um, yeah, so we're in urban Pittsburgh um, in the East End section of the city. And Garfield is the neighborhood. Um, Garfield once had about 10,000 people that lived in it in the 19 like 60s and 70s. And during that time, um, we saw major white flight from the city of Pittsburgh, as, as well as many other cities um, in the United States. And Garfield was one of the hardest hit um, by uh, people just abandoning their homes, leaving, leaving this uh, part of the city. So they went, uh, Garfield went from about 10,000 people down to um, less than 4,000. Um, wow. Today there's, it's, it's around 3,750, I believe, today. So the geography of the neighborhood really starts with, for us, with, with demographics. Um, it's also a neighborhood that is a big old hill. It's one of the highest uh, neighborhoods in the city. People don't really often realize that because we think of Mount Washington, the other side of our city has a, you know, the inclines that go up the hillside and it's called a mountain. It, we could call Garfield Mount Garfield. Some people do. <laughs> Those who have to walk it regularly call it Mount Garfield. <laughs> um, 
And at the very top of the hill is this giant blue water tower. And on one side of the water tower is public housing, um, where about a thousand people live. So think about the, the abandonment that, that I mentioned in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And then the city concentrated poverty to the very top of the hill. So the abandonment in the rest of the neighborhood is really even more severe than the numbers uh, indicate. So uh, about a thousand people in public housing, which really isn't as bad as it used to be in terms of like living conditions, they've rebuilt it and it's much, the, the homes are much nicer now uh, than they were when we started the farm. Um, and the farm is right on the other side of the water tower. So, uh, the main the main things happening at the very top of the hill are, are the public housing and Garfield Community Farm, and that's really the community that we seek to serve uh, best we can. Um, the uh, other geographic things that are of interest, um, it's because the neighborhood is so abandoned now for decades. It is a very forested neighborhood, hmm. so when we began um, just thinking about what it would look like to do something really positive as a church on abandoned land, um, we were, we were looking at, at woods and forests and lots of invasive plants and, and trees, um, but just lots of green. Mm -hmm. um, and also a lot of, a lot of bad things happening in those areas like, uh, a lot of prostitution in those more abandoned areas and drug deals. Um, and, uh, e you know, even worse than that, a lot of shootings um, that would happen around the neighborhood. And so we were looking 12 years ago for a spot to do a small community garden. And that's really where the story began was thinking about a community garden on, we thought, a vacant lot. Mm -hmm. And what we found were 25 consecutive lots with an alleyway and a street going through. Um, and uh, we started very small, but we, uh, we kind of began with a, a vision for this whole three acre piece of land right in the middle of the neighborhood next to public housing. Talk to us a little bit about why, why a community garden and, and what was it, um, at the time that you, you know, 12 years ago, you were thinking of doing this, why, why a community garden and why there? The, why there is the, is the really interesting question, I think. Um, why a community garden? Well, for me personally, as a, I was a brand new pastor right out of the seminary, leading a young congregation that wanted to do something really, something positive in the neighborhood. And I've always loved, uh, nature. I've always loved the outdoors. I've always loved gardening, grew up gardening, grew up in the suburbs, gardening with family. Um, I knew that ministry was not going to be, was not going to look very traditional for me. It took me a long time to finally like, be all right, ordination in the Presbyterian church. I think it's going to happen. But, um, but I knew that it was not going to be very, very traditional looking. And I knew that it was going to have a, a strong focus on um, environmentalism and our, and our role as Christians in caring for the earth. And so um, having lots of abandoned land around me was like, this is exciting. What can we do? 
Mm-hmm. Um, what positive can we do with this abandonment that is, has been such a negative, such a problem in the neighborhood? How can it be a solution? Um, so the the reason for the top of the hill is really the the, the folks that we want to work with and, and um, the need that was at the top of the hill. So there's no grocery stores in Garfield. Um, there's a, it's a, getting a little bit better now. 12 years ago, there was no grocery store within walking distance. There was a, the closest grocery store was Whole Foods in the next neighborhood over um, where gentrification is just exploding. Um, and people living at the top of the hill in Garfield do not walk um, down a thousand feet or so uh, in elevation. And I don't think it's quite a thousand, but it feels like it. And, uh, to a whole foods in the next neighborhood over. So that was the main reason we wanted to grow food in the neighborhood was just to, to provide it for folks in the neighborhood and see if we could see how much we could grow on, on a little bit of land. Um, and it, it kind of went from there. The reason that question is funny though, I met with right at the very beginning, I was really excited about this idea that was, that was bubbling up. We were going door to door in the neighborhood, just knocking on people's doors and saying, Hey, what do you think about uh, helping us grow some food? Would you be into that? And we were getting very good responses. And um, we partnered with another church called Valley View Presbyterian Church, which is a, a historic, predominantly African American uh, church that just, you know, has a rich history. And um, we've had the privilege of being able to partner with them on the farm for over 10 years now. And so we're doing all of that. And I met with some farmers though, like I'm not a farmer. I like gardening. I don't know that much at this point. Met with some urban farmers, knew what they were doing and they went up with me and and they saw the land and they're like, um, you might want to just find a different location. This, <laughs> this is, this probably isn't the right spot. Um, but it was the right spot for us because of the community that um, that exists around that spot. It's really about the people, um, and it just makes you know the bigger the problem, the 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 bigger the solution. And the solution has been um, to really reforest this area with native uh, native plants and fruits and food forests and um, growing very intensively where there's good soil that we've developed. Um, yeah. So what does it look like right now? Like on a given day, you know, you mentioned some food forest and intensive growing. Um, what are you growing? Who's growing it? What, what does it look like if, if I was to go on a a hike up, up Garfield Hill, (laughs) Garfield mountain, (laughs) you get there and sometimes people look around and they're like, is, there's a sign that says this is the farm. Is this the farm or am I in the woods? Um, <laughs> I mean, it's not dense. It's not dense woods, but um, we have a lot of fruit trees um, that are, I would say, sort of minimally managed. It doesn't look like an orchard. It looks a bit more like a food forest. Um, so multi-layered. Um, we grow a lot of like less traditional things, lots of, of berries, um, raspberries and blackberries and gooseberries, red currants and black currants and other, other things like that. Um, we, we, we began this, this year, uh, 
reaping some some nut harvest, which is really fun. So we have hazelnuts growing at the farm. Those those are that's a shrub that's uh, maybe about they're they're mostly around six feet tall at the farm right now. And so um, so just some really interesting things. Lots of medicinal plants and pollinator plants throughout the farm. Um, so elderberry all over the place. Uh, pawpaws are like my favorite thing in the world right now. Mm. So we have a few that are bearing fruit, which is really exciting. And um, lots of seedlings, lots of young pawpaw trees around. They seem to just want to grow and want to give food. And that's what, mm. that's what we really look for in, um, in the, the methods of growing food that we, that we do. Um, we look for what wants to grow and what wants to produce uh, bountifully with the least amount of input. Um, so we kind of have this food forest, uh, and in the middle of each food forest, um, there's usually, there's, there's an intensive, uh, annual garden plot. And those are the plots. I think we have four, I guess four to six, depending on how you count them, um, annual plots. And we rotate crops there. Um, so this year down by, we have a, a tunnel that is 60 feet long. Um, it's a caterpillar tunnel. It's not very tall. It's about uh, seven or eight feet tall. And um, on the other side of the tunnel, we have our tomatoes. We grow um, 10 to 20 varieties each year of heirloom tomatoes. Um, so, you know, you're the predictable things in the in the annual plots, like peppers and eggplants and onions and garlic and squash of different sorts um kind of in in those different sections of the farm one of the one of my favorite spots and this it was a couple years ago that we created it It was totally not my idea um it's a great example of a volunteer saying i want to do this can i do this and just saying yeah sure go for it uh where do you want to do it all right do it uh she had the idea of creating a an herb labyrinth which i don't really know of any other labyrinths that are like ours they're you know, it's a very useful uh, garden that we go in every week and harvest from, but it's also a prayer labyrinth or a meditation labyrinth. Um, it attracts ridiculous amounts of beneficial insects and pollinators. So it's like, it smells wonderful. You're, you know, got honeybees all over the place, all sorts of uh, beneficials like parasitic wasps, that you can, these tiny little things go into flowers and sometimes hummingbirds and um, butterflies and things like that. So if you were to go to the farm, um, those are some of the things you would experience. There's, there's something really evocative about your description of that labyrinth of, of being able to have a space that is both beneficial um, and on so many levels, um, beautiful, and then, but also kind of meditative. I, I, I'm really interested in, in what are the connections that you make between this work and, and your faith and your faith journey? And, and how did those connections um, mm -hmm. first start forming? The connections, the word connections is so important because I think when I started this work, the connections weren't all there. I knew, I knew that growing food and giving it away through a food bank, that was that was good work and we could do some of that. Um, the dealing with uh, 
racial injustice and social injustices in our neighborhood. That was important. But I didn't quite see how that was connected to growing some food. Um, climate justice, climate action, like e equipping churches to think about climate change. Um, didn't quite see how that was connected to grow to growing food. It's like awkward and embarrassing to say I didn't see those connections. Um, uh, you know, the, the bigger call to just ecological um, stewardship of the earth, caring for the earth, um, for Christians, uh, and, and just connecting all of those things together um, is, is really what the farm has done for me. And doing the work of the farm, we've, we've together begun connecting those things together, connecting those dots. And it's not easy. It's been very difficult uh, to, to help people see the connections, um, to, for myself to see some of those connections, to deal with um, some of our own white privilege and just in being able to start the farm has been huge and recognizing that if there were an African-American uh, in their late 20s walking around Garfield who said to the city of Pittsburgh, I want to start a farm here, they, it, it just didn't happen. It, uh, but uh, a white guy with um, with an education can go in and, you know, the city thought it was an amazing idea. And, and it was easy to take three acres of a neighborhood that's predominantly African-American um, and, and kind of transform it. So making all of those different connections and, um, and, and continuing to learn and learn how to really sit at the feet of folks in the neighborhood to learn from them and, and with them has been very important. You mentioned mm -hmm. that um, there's a congregation that you pastored who, or pastor that um, was a, you know, a key player, but then also this other church that was predominantly about black church. Um, how does that show up in terms of those partnerships? And then you have the people in the neighborhood. I'm assuming these are kind of three different, groups of people that the two churches and the neighborhood and and i'm curious as as those three groups of humans <laughs> come together and are interacting what have you what have you seen in that relationship building and yeah how have how have people been changed yeah um so valley view presbyterian church is about two blocks away from the farm and they, like i said they've they have been in the neighborhood for over a hundred years now, I think, uh, around a hundred years. And we are, we, the open door church started in 2005 and the farm started in 2008. Um, so we're, a, a still a young church, still a, a fairly new church. When we started the farm, we were like mostly in our twenties and, and early thirties. Um, and, and yeah, the neighborhood is, is another piece um, with those church partnerships. But Valley View has that long history. So everybody knows Valley View Church. Everybody knows Pastor Chad at Valley View. Um, when there's a shooting in the neighborhood, Valley View Church um, and their activists in that church are the first, some of the first people um, to be in the neighborhood on the streets uh, doing what they can when um when somebody dies in the neighborhood uh 
the funeral happens at Valley View Church. So it's just very, very connected. So it's been a blessing for us, the open door, to be able to to partner with Valley View. And it's it's a really beautiful thing. It was one of the first things we did as a church was to go to this church and say, we're, we're starting this new church and we'd love to kind of be a sister church of yours and, and ask for that relationship. And they loved it. They said yes. Um, so over the years, there's been, there, there's even been question of why don't we just make one church? <laughs> uh, uh, both churches fairly small. And we, I, I at least have come out on the side uh, with that question of, well, there, there's beauty in the difference between these two churches, the, the differences in how we worship. And there's just so much that we can do together um, in partnership in the neighborhood. So really trying to blend those, those three things maybe is a goal. And when people come to the farm, we want, whether they're from Valley View, the open door or the neighborhood or another neighborhood, we want them to feel like the farm is their farm. Mm -hmm. So we want the farm to be that piece that draws people in, makes them feel like it's their space and they have the, the right to it and they have the the right to experience the beauty that's there and experience nature there and experience other people there they have the right to the food um, that is grown there um, so we want it to be that kind of central thing that that brings unity i think there's there's such a wisdom there and in, in the maintaining of individual identities and still having a place to come together that is that is a place of partnership a place of community um, you know, I think so often we kind of force ideas of unity that that don't really make sense. Mm -hmm. But to actually have a place where those intersections can make can happen naturally and organically, like there's there's a lot of wisdom there. Yeah, um, I, I think is is something the church can definitely learn from. Mm -hmm. um, so when I when I met John um, and when we first started having these conversations, I was working at an organization called the Pittsburgh Project, and we had just started this program uh, that was also an urban farm, uh, much, much smaller scale, but it was a, it was a, um, it was a baseball field that had been abandoned um, and turned in and turned into a community garden. And the, the, the garden that I'm working on now here in Baltimore is also a former baseball field um, that has been turned into a community garden. Just, uh, I'd like to hear you reflect a little bit on what it means for us to reclaim some of these spaces, mm -hmm. um, these forgotten spaces, these overlooked spaces, um, spaces usually in communities where uh, um, where resources just don't flow naturally, um, and 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 sort of reflect on on what it's meant for you and for the church and for the community to revitalize some of those some of those broken spots in our in our society. Yeah. When you come to Garfield Farm, um, there are stairways kind of all over the place that, that once led into people's houses, you know, stairways from the sidewalks up, but they lead into gardens now. Most of the gardens are, are um, they have their own kind of stairway up into them from the sidewalk. Where, like I said, we're all on a hill. Um, and we've met many of the people that grew up in those houses. Um, I once met a 95 year old man at another church I was preaching at 
who uh, you know I was talking about the farm and he came up and he said I I grew up there in the 1920s <laughs> um he grew up uh right there at the farm at what is now the farm um so yeah it's a great question how do we honor the past honor the families that that show up you know that you never know when it's going to happen but somebody will show up in a car they could even be from out of town and they want to go see the spot where they grew up and we've had this happen you know over and over again over the years mm. we've you know we've thought about putting signs up with the names of some of the families you know the ones that we can figure out and, and find in records and call our different garden plots by the the family names things like that but yeah to recognize that history and not just bulldoze over it which is kind of what happened in the 70s when all these houses were torn down and then just left by the city, torn down and then no plan, nothing. Um, and, and that's what we entered into was trying to bring restoration um, to a neighborhood, to a people, to, um, to the soil of that land that had just been bulldozed, no topsoil left, um, very it would be very difficult to build houses on this land um it's undermined um there's there's very little there was very little that could have been done with it um apart from the the kind of work that we're doing and it's not like we came up with the perfect plan of how to do permaculture work on this land we just did whatever we could to find something that would work <laughs> and and so that's where we've landed now so I would love to see churches asking those questions. Where is there, where is there a story that's been lost? Where is there abandonment? Where are there people currently living in those abandoned places? And those, it doesn't have to be like physical abandonment, but just abandoned by, you know, the, the American empire in some way. Um, and, and how can we enter into those places and, and start to, rebuild or regrow restore relationships restore um ecological systems restore health so those are kind of the questions we're asking and i i think the ways that we're trying to honor the past is just by bringing a kind of gentle and slow restoration back to that space there's something that's so deeply beautiful as i'm hearing you speak of the images of coming of that that deep and slow and honoring of the past also seems like there's an honoring of of the present in that it's it's not a um it's not a quick fix it's not a let's just do this as as easily as possible or as even efficiently as possible but let's actually be be with this land be with this space be with this community um and it kind of goes back to what you're saying before about like the pawpaws that like you're looking for things that seem to want to grow there and give food and there's there's something so reciprocal about that, um, which I feel like is one of the one of the many places that we are we are lacking in this culture today. Is you know you can just if your tomato comes off the shelf in the grocery store, that there's not a reciprocity in knowing like first of all where that tomato is grown and who is involved and the the processes involved, but also like you didn't, you don't know if that tomato wanted to be grown for you. <laughs> you know, you don't know if that, whereas the tomatoes that are out on my 
you know, out on the side of the house, like there's, there's a relationship there. And, yeah. and I know there's, there's a terms that I don't think we usually often use between humans and plants, but I think mm-hmm. there's, I don't know, there's a, there's an area of growth and learning there for me to learn that there actually is, there is reciprocity in these systems and it takes an attention to the past and to the present and it takes a a different kind of listening and a different kind of um willingness to be with the pace of nature rather than the pace of our industrialized commercialized lives yep I teach permaculture and practice perm. We practice permaculture at the farm. And one of the principles is to use small and slow solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Garfield Community Farm is just a really good example of uh, just really paying attention to what's happening on the land and in the community, and then creating solutions to the to the problems that we see, um, and and connecting connecting things that are normally separated and and bringing integration um so on our land like i said it the the, derek talked about the pittsburgh project so i'll go back to that pittsburgh project farm that was my that was my inspiration for garfield community farm so a couple years before we started pittsburgh project on the north side we're in the east end north side of pittsburgh started this farm but it was a baseball field so it's like perfectly cleared land just the lawn ours is our land was rubble trees japanese knotweed um and, and so it was very different both abandoned completely abandoned places um but the needs and the things already happening there were very different from you know a, a baseball field that had been abandoned compared to three city blocks of neighborhood that were abandoned um so over the years, we've looked for what species, what plants are already here, what what's already happening, and how can we how can we kind of boost those things to become more healthy, um, to capture more carbon, to uh, to grow in relationship with the things that they would have if they were growing in a you know a, a healthy native forest. So to try to bring those things back. So yeah, just really looking for those those patterns and those relationships and foster healthier connections and integration. So we've seen that even in like the annual garden plots at the farm, um, the, the benefit of having, uh, we'll have patches right in the middle of those gardens where there's uh, like right now we have one patch that just looks like this mass of wildness right in the middle of the garden where there's goldenrod and perennial sunflower and bergamot uh, mulberry trees starting to grow there. Um, but the bees are just unbelievable. So it's bringing the insect relationships back into, into harmony. And that space we had, we didn't even think about using any kind of an insecticide this year because there's, there's a healthy, you know, complex network of uh of insects that live right there and love being there and get everything that they need because of the diversity that's there um so i think that's what gardening at its best always looks like uh land stewardship always looks like is increasing diversity um not rushing it but uh integrating 
things like flowers and pollinator plants and water capture and soil health and vegetables and your fruit trees and all that. I mean, you're, you're, you're throwing so many great images at us right now and I'm, I'm loving this. Um, and I wanted to just step back a little bit cause you've, you've said you've, you've mentioned permaculture twice. Yeah. Um, and I wanted wondering if you could um, define it a little bit for us, because when I think of permaculture, I think of working with nature. Mm-hmm. How, how do you define it? Yeah, I, that's a great, a great definition. I think keeping the definitions simple in permaculture is really important. Um, some people uh, want to make it a, a bit too complicated, but yeah, permaculture is really developing a, an understanding of how ecological systems work. And we're all at different starting points with that, but just recognizing that ecological systems are a thing and we need to enter (laughs) back into them. So, um, and then asking how can humanity be a part of those ecological systems, not the ruler over them, not the one with the bulldozer to remove them, but how do we enter into ecological systems as a part of them and then manage them toward greater health and, and productivity for, for ourselves and um, for the natural world? And for me, that feels like working alongside God, like yeah. working with what God has, has set up, working with the order that God has created and being co-creators with what you know, what God has set in motion. And I think there's something really beautiful and profound about that. Yeah. Permaculture for me is, it personally is very deeply rooted in, in the Genesis narratives. And um, the idea that in, in Genesis 1, the end of the chapter, you know, God is creating day by day things that are, are good. You know, God creates and, and God sees that, it, that it's good. And then on the sixth day, God creates humanity, right? And God looks, God doesn't say anything about humanity. This is like the most profound little point that, that I've found in Genesis. God doesn't say God looked at, at humanity and, and saw that, it, that, that they were good. God looks at all of it. Mm. So creates mm-hmm. humanity, looks at all of it, steps back and says, it's all very good. So because of our place in the rest of everything, it's all very good. But so without us, it's good. With us, it's very good. But we're nothing. God doesn't say we're good or very good or anything <laughs> apart from our relationship to the rest of creation. Mm. So we love to like pull ourselves out as, as human beings and um, and see ourselves as separate from from creation and from these, you know, immensely complex and beautiful ecological systems that God has created. We pull ourselves out for some reason, and and I don't think we should. I don't think that we are fully human without the beauty of planet Earth. Yeah, that's beautiful. I can I re- take us back to. Yeah. A little bit. So I'm having this tension point between feeling like such deep like connection and peace when you talk about slow and small solutions and that kind of pace. And then that feels intention with 
what I believe is a climate crisis and that we are seeing temperatures rise in ways that um, at some point will become irreversible and we're seeing wildfires and hurricanes and, and, you know, and soil turning into deserts and, and it feels like it's an emergency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think the two speak to one another, but I feel the tension between them. And I wonder if you have any, any wisdom of how, how do you live in that tension of something that is, is actively urgent with maybe part of the solution is to be, it's, it's urgent and it's global. <laughs> and when maybe part of the solution is to be slow and small and how do you reconcile or maybe how do you live in the tension of those two? Mm-hmm. For me, permaculture has been my way of, of doing something when I feel like completely overwhelmed by the, the crises all over the world, especially around climate change and loss of biodiversity and all of that. Um, I think it permaculture can both, it, it gives us that connection to nature and to one another potentially um, that we so long for, that we're missing and that connection, I think, is why that lack of connection is why so many people are not taking action. It's because they're not, they don't feel like they are inextricably bound to the health of mm. the planet. Um, but with permaculture, when we enter into that relationship with nature and begin to work with her and, and, and mold her in our little pockets of the earth, uh, we develop that relationship, and I think we realize that anytime we we enter into a relationship and try to <laughs> like change someone, um, that that can be an abusive relationship, right? So it's almost that same thing. Entering into mm. a relationship with our little tiny patch of of earth, um, the best way to honor that is to to move to move slowly and with intention. And that doesn't mean lackadaisically. It doesn't mean, I mean, it's like slow solutions, but with the belief that these solutions could, could be the answer to saving planet earth. <laughs> like <laughs> these are so important. Um, so, so while we're, while, while we're doing our permaculture, um, we, I think the most important thing that we're doing at the farm is teaching other people to go out and do this likewise, mm. to, um, to, to be re- respectful of the earth and the land and to get to know her and to, to be in relationship and also to do that with the people, the other people who are connected to that land. Um, justice work is always, always important in permaculture. Um, I love that in permaculture, the the ethics are care for the earth. Everything we do, we're caring for the earth and we're caring for people at the same time. And that you can't do one without the other. And really, we never have been able to do one without the other. That It's like a, it's a, mis, a, a misunderstanding of environmentalism if we think we can be environmentalists without being humanitarians. And likewise, we can't be a humanitarian or an activist for justice without also being an activist for the earth. 
So we have to be respectful and slow and we want to bring other people along with us because it's, we're not going to be able to make the big changes that we need to make without building those relationships and, um, and helping others make those small changes. Um, a few years ago, I heard a, a speaker say that they're not really an activist uh, in the sense of like going to DC and protesting. And this is enough years ago that it, it felt very differently to hear this. Now I'm going to give some critique of it, but they don't go protest in the streets, but their, their protest or their activism is the activism of, of personal choice. And for a long time, I liked that, that my how I live my life is my activism. I don't believe that anymore. Um, there are massive changes that have to happen on this earth in politics and all around the planet if we're going to, um, to be able to save ourselves. Um, so my activism of doing my like backyard permaculture really is not enough. My slow solutions just in my backyard, your backyard, really aren't enough. Mm -hmm. But they're a piece to it. And how else are we taking action culturally, politically, um, around the planet uh, through education work we're doing? Like, there, there has to be a bigger piece right now because we are in a crisis right now. And, and we can pull ourselves out, but uh, it, it really has to go beyond. It has to be communal and it does have to be bigger. Sounds like that's that both and. Mm -hmm. And that for me to keep understanding the activism that I'm called to do, it actually does have something to do with also seeing how the number of bees that have taken up residence in my backyard this summer. I mean, that there's, or like Derek, you and your milkweed, you know, like it's <laughs> like that this is, it, it, and not just my relationship with the bees, but also how am I supporting my neighbors in, in that and inviting yeah. others and like those to that kind of observation and work. So yeah, that, that both and feels true. Yeah. And, and seeing those little connections begin to happen can be so life-giving. Um, in my, our backyard, you know, it's a, some, it often is a crazy mess back there. There's a lot going on. We try to do a little bit of everything. Our house, um, you know, we, we heat with wood, we have solar, um, solar electricity, uh, we grow a whole bunch of food back there and medicine. We have a pond and fruit trees. And this is an urban backyard, not even suburban. This is like in the city. And over the past couple of years, I, my neighbor right next door, they had, a they had a big swimming pool. The swimming pool is no longer in use, but they now have a big garden. <laughs> and they, they never gardened before. Uh, you know, we've been there for 10 years and now they're, they're gardening and, you know, we're, we're like sharing gardening stories over the fence. And then a few houses down the other way, the house put up solar panels and they got a Tesla. So I'm like really jealous that they have a <laughs> Tesla in the garage. So they pull into their garage that's covered in solar panels and put their Tesla in. And I'm like, oh man. And, and that's kind of popping up all over the neighborhood. And, and this, we live one neighborhood over from where Garfield is. And it's called Stanton Heights. It's the, the most 
beautifully diverse neighborhood, I think, in the city of Pittsburgh, meaning it's about 50% black and 50% uh, Caucasian um, with a very few his- Hispanic folks, um, uh, I guess more in the past couple of years. So anyway, to see these like beautiful changes happening in the neighborhood, and I don't take credit for all of them, but... <laughs> It's nice to be a part of those changes and to see kind of systemic change happening um, in a neighborhood that that is right there in the middle of the city. But there is there is something to be said about, um, you know, even if we don't want to take credit for these sorts of things, like there is something to be said for our influence. You know, my my next door neighbor who who uh, all of a sudden this year has a big garden and like i i can't help but notice that he's got a garden all of a sudden you know mm-hmm. and and the tesla's on my street you know same sort of thing of like you know maybe our maybe our lives are having having those sorts of 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 impact mm-hmm. um so you've you've touched on it a little bit and and i I'd, I'd just like to we'd just like to hear from you and we ask all of our guests this um what gives you hope um not like a naive kind of hope but like a a, a real deep hope first thing that comes to mind is sometimes it's the last thing that comes to mind for me but i'm going to say it anyway Uh, um the church gives me hope um working on on two projects right now with um with two different churches one of them is uh a suburban church that owns a bunch of land and we have um, a th- probably a three-phase plan that's going to start taking effect of reforesting a bunch of their land. They have these like giant lawns, and we're we're doing a reforestation project there. We have a hundred trees we're putting in this fall on their property, um, and they're they're going to do a food forest, an orchard, a garden. But it's so hopeful to see this suburban church taking these pretty big steps. Um, and planting hundreds and hundreds of trees right on their own property. Um, there's another church here in the city that after years of talking about this with the rich suburban churches of what it would look like for churches to put solar panels up to, to think about energy usage. And I think it, it could be a really a beautiful like city on a hill type thing for churches to say, we're going to do this first and see what happens, see who else follows. Um, so well, the church that's doing it is Valley View Presbyterian Church that has, you know, I don't know how many <laughs> members they have, like 50 members. Most of them are over the age of 70. Um, most of them are probably lower income. Um, they have a part-time pastor and they're going solar. They're doing it. Um <laughs> And, and they, they're doing it with donations from other people. Like, it's great how they're doing it. But they're the ones doing it. And it's just not what I expected. And it's really beautiful. Um, and there are other churches now saying, oh, like, Valley View's doing this. <laughs> maybe we, we could do maybe this. Maybe we could do that. We've got the money. Like, in, we could do this right now. We're just scared to spend any money. Um, <laughs> so... That gives me hope, and it it, just, it also gives me hope to see um, so many young people at the farm really getting it, getting the connections that I was talking about, getting that 
caring for the earth is caring for people and that we need to do those things in a way that that is fair and equitable and ra- you know raises the poor up and takes takes into full account um the stories of marginalized people um and they they get that and they're doing it um in their education work they're choosing to to get uh education in in higher education that will help them be able to solve these these massive problems that we have so it's really an honor to be able to work with young people and and you know provide something that inspires them and and helps them pursue um the betterment of of god's creation the betterment of people on earth yeah thank you that's so that's so helpful and i feel like i hope our listeners can take some of that away that these pieces that we are doing in our own backyards and our own churches and in our, in our own communities, like they are part of something bigger. Like Mm -hmm. that's one thing that the podcast can do. I hope it's to connect the conversations that we know that we're not, we're not alone in this work and that we can be inspired by one another and supportive of one another. And, um, and that the church is part of that, that work of our religious institutions can drive us a little a little bonkers sometimes and they also are this beautiful beautiful opportunity for connectiveness and yeah so where can people find you or your work if they would like to connect yeah you can come visit us in pittsburgh when covid's over we'll put you up in somebody's house you can hang out at the farm for a couple days um or you can just find us on uh, on Instagram, I, we post lots of pictures of what's happening at the farm. Um, so, uh, our handle is just Garfield farm. We also use Facebook. Um, you can find us there, Garfield community farm on Facebook. And, um, we have a new website that's going to be coming out that I'm really excited about. It's not quite up yet, but uh, garfieldfarm.com is our website. So if you were to want to come and do some volunteering at the farm or um, just learn more, garfieldfarm.com is the place to go. Awesome. One of the things that's kind of on my list at some point is to um, be able to make it out for your permaculture class. It's, yeah. been, it's, been, it's been on my radar for a long time. Nice. Um, John, thank you so much for for the work you're doing, and thank you for being here and and sharing all of the all of the ways that um, God has been using you and your church uh, to connect people to each other and to God and to creation. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, the Garden Church and the Keep Intel. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.